and welcome to Paddock Chat, a West Midlands group podcast created to keep local growers in the loop without having to leave the paddock. Each episode, we delve into topics on the farming horizon and help you in the search for the answers needed to confidently navigate the future ahead. So let's dive into today's episode. This episode has been recorded with our long-term sponsor, Bayer Crop Science. Joining us today is Matt Willis from Bayer who has, over the past four years, been conducting various herbicide trials in conjunction with the West Midlands Group that always give our members the information they need on weed control options and to help them in tackling that ever-present challenge of keeping their weeds under control. We also have newly appointed Director of the Australian Herbicide Resistance Initiative, or ARI, Associate Professor Ken Flower. He's here with us today to bring his perspective on the future of effective weed control for agriculture. I welcome Ken and congratulate him on his recent appointment as Director of ARI. Today we will be pulling together the experience that Matt has gained in the region of what's working and what isn't and put this together with Ken's experience with weed control in a no-tillage systems along with the research power of ARI to identify the issues that we need to be thinking about now in order to have effective weed control options in three to five years time. So. It's time to pull that sprayer into auto steer, sit back and have some paddock chat. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and may not be wholly appropriate for your purposes or situation. We recommend that you seek appropriate professional advice before implementing actions based on the information provided in this podcast. And this podcast was recorded in February of 2023. So today's podcast episode is more like a conversation than it is a podcast interview as we normally would. I've known Ken for a long time now. I come over here to study under him in 2013 when I looked to complete a PhD. And I've worked with Matt as well for the last five years through the West Midlands Group in many of the research trials each year at the Springfield Day site. So today's conversation will start with Matt talking a little bit about what he sees across the region in terms of trends for weed control and perhaps weed resistance and then we'll kind of move on to what that means for the future and and what RE sees as important goals for the future. So I'll start the conversation now by asking Matt what he's seeing around the region. Well right now the topical things with chemistry right now is HBPD resistance with wild radish, a massive thing. A lot of growers particularly north of Western Australia are very reliant on that mode of action now to control wild radish. So prior to the release of Precept and Velocity, both of which contain pyrosulfatol, um, they're having some very, very serious issues with wild radish up there. And with the use of said products, they have reduced the wild radish numbers back to the point where, as you were saying before, Ken, that you could uh, use your, 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 your photo technology to pick out those, without having to spray the whole paddock and really reduce the numbers, but because you know, they've been out for about 12 to 13 years respectively, Velocity and Preset now, that there's some paddocks which have received at least 10 hits, maybe even more doses of said product. And we are now starting to see in some of those paddocks a, a shift in sensitivity, um, almost to the point of in-crop failure. Uh, so it's not quite there, but it's not far off due to that reliance on that chemistry. And think, well, if that doesn't work anymore, that, that could be a big issue and, and resistance to parasophitol by Wild radish has never happened in the world before. It would be a first in Western Australia, and so you're looking at areas up around Geraldton, Mullawa, they're the ones where they're, they're wheat on wheat on wheat. They don't rotate crops. They don't rotate chemistry because nothing else works in controlling the wild radish, and it, it's all leading to that mode of action having some issues. And it's not going to be a matter of an on-off switch 
all of a sudden this product doesn't work. It's obviously isolated in certain paddocks and it's metabolic, so it means that you're, only, you're seeing a, a, a gradual reduction in control as opposed to one that magically does not work at all, but it's certainly a, a looming topical issue in that area due to the lack of other options herbicides. Uh, group J's and K's, or Group 15 now, a lot of use of prosulfocarbon and pyroxysulfone over the past 15 years now. You think back to prior to their release when we were so reliant on trifluralin, trilate was considered fancy back then, even pendimethylin was floating around. Whereas now we've, we've been using your box of golds and your arcades with prosulfocarbon and your sakuras with prosulfone, but with both of those being off patent now, downward price pressure, there's been a higher uptake of those products and there will be even more so going forward. The temptation there is for the grower is an easy fix for their ryegrass problems is just use more of it. What we've learned over the years about mixing modes of action together, so mixing your Sakura with your Trifluralin uh, and ideally using other big weed smart, big six, rotating crops, harvest weed seed management, etc. But sometimes economics come down to it, you want to do wheat on wheat on wheat and you go Sakura, Sakura, Sakura and once again we are picking up shifts in sensitivity, some confirmed cases, particularly in South Australia, of full-blown resistance to proxysulfone and it's something that needs to be managed going forward because it, it, it is a useful tool or remain to be a very useful tool for hopefully many years to come but with it becoming cheaper therefore used more widely the risk is that it'll get overused and break not quite as robust as what trifluralin has been over the years and i know that roberto busi with ari even before sakura was released he was able to prove that multiple uh, sequential usage of sakura uh, at sublethal rates could develop resistance very quickly uh, and that's proven to be the case in the field because once you apply is the cura 118 grams, 100 grams active prosulfone. And yeah, it, it works, it's effective, uh, but then you're not always getting full coverage. You might have shading, you might have all things that lead to maybe a sublethal dose in the paddock. And that, that was what can help drive that resistance. So it, that's certainly a big thing going forward, given how reliant we are on Sakura. And luckily we do have alternate chemistries coming through with Pixelzone, Overwatch, uh, with Luxamax coming through, which are good alternatives, but we don't want to rely purely on those on chemistry, that's yeah. what we look at these other strategies. But beyond that, I think the big one, the, the big thing that's been spoken about for many years now, uh, is the glyphosate resistance. It is real, it's becoming more real with each passing year. You do resistance tests in the paddocks and beforehand you'd, you'd every so often come up with a, a low to mid-level resistance. So quite often, very often now, you'll come up with some degree of resistance to glyphosate and you're seeing our rates right now with our knockdowns. So you're creeping up, people putting out three to four litres per hectare I've got to say it to get a good level of kill and the rates got higher and higher. And I've done a lot of work with fence line chemistry in the last year or so. We've got a new fence line herbicide coming out at the end of this year, hence why I've been doing it, and just randomly selecting fence lines and doing resistance tests on them and coming across high level glyphosate resistance on fence lines. It could just be just the way people have gone about managing their fence lines over the, the eons, over the entire last band of agriculture in Australia, but yeah, just squirting out a, a low rate of, of glyphosate with whatever else they find in the shed, be it a bit of ally, a bit of atrazine, a bit of glean, and then squirting it out with their ute boom, uh, which is not necessarily calibrated very well and usually applied in July when the ryegrass and all the other various weeds on the fence line are already at waist height, so you're not getting very good coverage. And it's, it's no wonder that we start to pick up a lot more resistance there. And of course, once you develop that resistance on the fence line, it blows into the paddock and then becomes an in-crop issue. So uh, certainly managing fence lines is something we need to learn to do a lot better in Australian agriculture because I don't believe we're doing it very well. 
And so, Ken, test you on your homework in coming into the, the director role. Do they kind of keep track of what's happening in the resistance or through survey work over time to help track what Matt's seeing as well? You'll probably know Michelle Owen does random surveys every five years, I think, and the last one was 2020. I don't think all the results are out yet, so they're still testing and compiling that data. So I can't say from the random surveys exactly what the results are. That's a project involving South Australia, New South Wales, etc. I think John Broster leads that, a GRDC project. So it's sort of yep. been combined and started off as WA, I think we know, and then it's become national, managed by GRDC through John Broster, CSU, Charles Uni. So they are monitoring it, but yes, certainly Roberto Busi is getting samples coming in, and yes, there is glyphosate resistance, as, as Matt says, particularly on fence lines. I had a phone call today, actually, someone asking for some information about that because just got a local grower meeting and glyphosate resistance on fence lines was actually mentioned that So that was about half an hour ago. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly what Matt's saying there. It's obviously increasing and particularly fence lines are an issue. I guess, Ken, if you want to just talk a little bit about being new into the director's role, it seems you've got a little bit of a change in focus of where you think Ari should head into the future in terms of looking more of a whole systems approach with weed control. Yes, so I think the key or core components of ARIA are all critical because obviously, you know, managing the issue of herbicide resistance requires we're still going to have to use herbicides. It's going to continue to be a key part of our system. So we do need to work on sort of gene discovery and molecular work, looking at uh, mixes, et cetera, et cetera. All the work that's going on with herbicides is absolutely crucial. But I think we need to ramp up the systems work to really take a different approach and so I think the opportunity now is that because technology is moving so rapidly in so many areas obviously not just agriculture but it's really revolutionizing things you know there's an opportunity to integrate some of that technology into what we do to improve what we're doing but at the end of the day it's got to be integrated into a system. I think it's also an objective this podcast display that's not RE versus mm. the chemical companies when it comes to this uh, your strategy going forward because I know Bayer you know, and I'm certain I'm sure a lot of the others as well they don't see themselves as a chemistry only sort of company pretty much all of them are getting to digital agriculture in some form or the other yep. whether that's weed identification tools or for instance us with Fieldview which is implementing these targeted spraying so you identify where the weeds are or the area most likely to have disease and then spraying that area only and, and that opens up opportunities to use products which economically wouldn't be viable. Otherwise, if you're only spraying 20% of the paddock, all of a sudden things become an option where otherwise they wouldn't be broadcasting across the whole, whole site. And then things like, I know you've spoken, Ken, about targeted crop competition. Mm. And I know that few of you in America, they do um, use that, that to alter the seeding rates of their hybrid yeah. soybean and corn. And I think also like competition work would have been done in the past, but people wouldn't have gone over certain rates because, oh, no farmer's going to ever use that. Mm. Whereas now yep. it's targeted to small patches. You know, you could look at 400 plants per metre square thousand, yep. um, you know, which would have been ridiculous before. But because it's targeted, we need to rethink all of those options, I think, non-chemical and chemical. In terms of the chemical as well, I think, is the issue of how does spot spraying play out to herbicide resistance? How is herbicide resistance going to develop under that scenario of spot spraying? 
where in that spot spraying scenario you normally have a higher rate or a more potent mix or a more specialised mix mm. where you're just hitting that little target. So you know, potentially the resistance it could generate from that could be mm. quite significant because like it's, if it can survive that, it's going to... But then you've got less uh, sublethal rates, less survivors, no matter what the resistance it gets. Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit different to fungus. I think that's a, it changes the scenario as mm. opposed to you know, uniform, broad... It's going to be different if we move on to more targeted applications. Yeah. And, and that's something like we've just discussed. There's three or four things that automatically we can think of that change that we don't really know what that impact will be. I guess it depends whether we know what the biggest drivers are. I guess in the past, sublethal doses have been a pretty good way of developing resistance. Mm-hmm. So even if we could cut that out, that may be a, a huge step forward. And just kind of going back to the whole, you know, being able to bump seeding rates up kind of site-specific to 400 plants or maybe 1,000 plants, as you said, Ken, in the past we couldn't do it because it was the whole paddock yeah. and, and it would have an adverse effect on yield. But you might be trying to cover up a patch of ryegrass that might only be 20 square metres so that the air seeder might only bump up for 10 or 15 metres of the run and then drop back down. Yeah. So you know, with the precision ag side of it, you know, maybe that, and it's probably a discussion for another podcast that, you know, how effective we are in using precision ag at the moment, but that may be some of the ways that we start seeing the benefits of using some of those precision ag tools yeah. to come through. Yeah. And I think the other thing, Nathan, is we can see it's a massive task. It involves many different areas of expertise. So it's obviously your industry and the companies that are developing the herbicides, and they're getting more and more involved in the tech side as well, but it's also your tech startups. It's your systems people. We all need to basically work on that problem. It's, the problem's too big for just one group. Like Ari's not yep. going to solve the problem. And no one company is going to solve the problem. We actually all need to work together. So that's one of my visions is actually to get everyone working together towards this goal of reducing reliance on high use of herbicides. So that's not eliminating it, but basically making our system more robust and more diverse. And it's to get all industry working together. I mean, people in ag generally do work well together, but I think, you know, with a focus on making our weed control more sustainable I think is going to be one of the keys. I've repeated it on a previous occasion but one of the farmers said to me if you can't measure the problem you can't manage it and that's why I'm quite interested in the tech side because we can try and use tech to actually not to just detect the weed so we can spray it it's actually to detect the weed so that we know where they are. And if we know where they are in the paddock, then we can deal with them with non-chemical or chemical. And so that involves, uh, at the moment, most of the detection is done late, you know, when the weed's poking up the crop. So we're looking at some research for weed detection early, mid-crop, late-crop, all of this putting together, using that. And Mike Ashworth's doing some work at the moment with um, some other weed species like wild oats. If we map where the patches are, we're doing some work to find out on micas where the germinations occur next year. So we can start to build models so that we can start to understand, okay, we're mapping them this year, we know where they're likely going to be next year. So then we can take, I suppose, a more strategic approach to managing those in the long term rather than just the and spray managing the weed that's already there. You've been able to detect whether you're winning or losing the battle in that sort of situation too. You can see the weed patch getting larger, you know, or to to change what I'm doing. Because at the moment we know, oh, we 
it looks this year the weed control is better than last year, but to actually know where the patches are, as Matt says, mm. and whether those patches are getting bigger or smaller, yep. uh, we actually then know if our weed control measures are working. I, I know from my time back when I was an agronomist that that science or that, that way of detecting your weed bird in a paddock is not very precise. And that, that's not to say that no one does it. I'm sure there's plenty of exceptions out there, but I had plenty of situations where planning for a following year's uh, crop and its, and its weed management strategy, like, which paddocks have weeds? Oh, I think maybe that one, you hop on your harvester and you sort of draw a little mud map. It's quite an imprecise science and it probably still is for the most part. But to, to be able to do what Ken is describing here or what Mike's doing could prove very, very useful. I mean, how many times have we put a trial down working on fertilizers or something? Oh, we want a weed-free patch. <laughs> and, and there, you know, there's a lot of weed coming up there because yeah. we thought it was weed-free. And I think if we're mapping and recording where those patches are in a paddock, we'll know exactly where the weeds are. There'd be very few paddocks where the weeds uniformly build up over time. We do know that they start from patches and they spread yeah. out and yeah. that patches joins that another patch and then yeah. and then all of a sudden something will happen and then those weeds push out and take it up. So if you'd go out and just look at that good bit of the crop there, you know, that looks pretty good, it's weed free. But, you know, coming off the creek lines or off the fence line you've, or, or the headlands, you've got... You see where the sheep have walked into the paddock or where you've just pulled in a header from another farm down yeah. the road and... Oh, I didn't clean it down. Oh, no, there's weeds there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I nearly cried one day when I used to farm and, and we didn't have any radish on the farm. We knew the harvester, the contractor was coming from a farm that had radish and we told him to blow it all down and he did. But then as the harvester drove the ear, you know, it bounced and shook and pulled the front on, put the front on the header and drove out and turned her on, drove out in the crop harvesting. And the first thing you could see was just radish seeds going everywhere. And so, so we had this 50 by 50 square metre patch of radish plants, just thick as that we'd never had. And then slowly they all ended up, the sheep took it around the farm and yeah, just unreal. So, you know, I guess understanding, being able to understand those dynamics of, you know, how far things are going to move and, and what rate helps to then be able to take, you know, knowing where they are, we kind of know where they're going to move, then we can manage it. So I guess one thing that's coming out is, out of this conversation is that increasing use of technology and being able to, you know, map and understand and know what's happening by remote sensing and, and other means, which then kind of leads on to being able to manage those patches in some sort of locally site-specific way, chemical or non-chemically, one of the big issues, I guess, is in the first instance is kind of getting farmer literacy and getting adoption of all of those tools and getting them working on farms. So you know, farmers have those options up their sleeve. I know we've been trying to work with some precision ag projects lately, but there are very few farmers that have everything set up that they could do a variable rate spraying map or they could change their seeding. There are increasing numbers, but you know, that seems to be one of the big hurdles that You've hit the nail on the head, Nathan. It's, this isn't an easy task, and the data side is going to be probably one of the biggest bottlenecks. It's actually managing all that data. And so that's why this system has to be almost seamless, has to be ready that the computers do the job for you, and they just produce that map. And then you're looking at that map, making decisions, yeah. that sort of thing, and not having to manage you know, all of that data. So there's a huge... A lot of work to be done to get you know these systems practical for for growers to use, and that's also why training for new graduates is going to be really important. So that's why we started AgTech Major here. It's basically ag science with AgTech because we need people going out into industry to have those skills. So how to manage big data sets, 
you know, spatially uh, explore the data, make decisions from the data, as well as obviously the ag science side of it. So hopefully the new graduates coming in or out of the universities and training centres will have that ag tech background and can then work in the industry. Because big data is it's it's a massive industry issue. Things have to be easy for farmers to adopt technologies. And classic example that in my mind was auto steer. Once things got right and it was and it was easy to do, I think the entire state adopted it within two years. Whereas we've been tracking yield maps for years now, but when very few people at the point where they can utilise those yield maps to make decisions with variable rate and such, even though most people with their say their John Deere and their my John Deere setup have the capability to do so, but, but because it's not easy to do it's not easy to understand, it's not easy to implement, not many people do it. So being able to understand that data with an IT degree or a digital degree of some sort, like Ken's saying they're doing now at UWA, is imperative because I'm certainly not at the point where I can currently <laughs> do anything with it based off my traditional agricultural uh, education. <laughs> so it's certainly a, a gap of knowledge for the, for the wider ag industry right now. And so we've we started off talking about weeds, we've moved into precision ag, technology and then we've moved on to education. It sounds like it is quite a large sort of challenge that's in front of us and I think Ken's approach where we we need to bring everyone in together to collaborate and, and address these issues, help build what's going to be successful in the future is probably the right approach. The question that we like to ask at the end is what keeps you both interested in agriculture? Yeah, for me, what keeps me interested in agriculture is providing solutions. I think you, know, you asked me a similar question last year when we spoke with Mike Ashworth, and the same for me now is to bring solutions to growers. And that's why I always enjoy working for something like that, where we're bringing products, both chemical and, and our non-chemical as well, uh, solutions to growers to solve their problems. And it gives me great satisfaction when we can do so. So that's probably the, the thing that really gives me inspiration, which uh, helps me when I wake up in the morning and get to work, <laughs> I suppose, uh, yeah. to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, I mean, the ag industry has given me a huge amount. Talking to growers, um, you learn a huge amount. So I find the learning aspect, you're always learning something new. It's a dynamic industry and there's some big challenges ahead. And so, you know, because I'm in education, what gives me a huge amount of pleasure is seeing young graduates going out and making an impact uh, in the industry. and. As I say, because it's a fast-moving and dynamic industry and things are changing so fast, particularly in the last few years, you know, with the technology that's taken off, I think it's a very exciting space to be in. Yeah, definitely. So in closing, I'd like to thank Bayer Crop Science for their support as sponsor over the past five years and look forward to working again with Matt at our 2023 Springfield Day site. I also look forward to working with Ari on developing sustainable farming systems in the future, particularly ones that are profitable, sustainable and with good weed control options. Thanks for listening to this episode. Our members are an essential part of why we do what we do. For more information, including how to become a member, visit our website where you can sign up at any time. Links can be found in the show notes. See you next time for some more paddock chat. Local knowledge from a paddock near you.